This podcast is sponsored by ebookit.com, self-publishing solutions for the independent author and small press. Visit us today at ebookit.com. Welcome to the Toastmasters podcast, the official podcast of Toastmasters International. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin. And I'm Ryan Levesque. Ryan, books, TV shows, movies, many have been made around competitions. Hunger Games, Harry Potter, the Rocky movies, even Herbie the Love Bug. We think of sports, cars, physical human endurance, but public speaking? <laughs> Not so much. Our guest today seems to have broken that mold and has authored a novel to the delight of any orator. Ryan, who are we speaking with today? Today's guest is Catherine Collette. Catherine is a novelist, podcaster, and engineer who lives in Melbourne, Australia with her husband and two children. She's also a former Toastmaster, having been a member of two clubs for a couple of years apiece. Catherine's second novel is called The Competition, and it takes place at a large public speaking convention featuring a high-profile speech contest. Catherine and her novel are featured in a Q&A in the August 2022 issue of The Toastmaster. It's called A Novel Approach to Speech Contests. I like that play on words. Catherine Collette, welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Catherine, Ryan and I have both read your book cover to cover, honestly. But for listeners who have not yet had the pleasure, in a nutshell, what's the book about? So the book I describe as being set in the weird world of competitive public speaking. It takes place in a Toastmasters-like environment. And I'm always very keen to stress that it is Toastmasters-like <laughs> and not Toastmasters. The type of public speaking club is called Speechmakers. And so the book takes place at a Speechmakers competition in Brisbane, Australia. And we follow a couple of different characters as they compete to be crowned Australia's best speechmaker. Thanks for lining that up. <laughs> And now, Catherine, I understand you have parents who either were or are Toastmasters. Maybe you can clarify that for us. You were also a Toastmaster yourself for several years. I'm curious, at what point in your Toastmasters journey did the idea for this novel begin to germinate and take shape in that brain of yours? That's a great question. I do have parents that were both Toastmasters and I joined a Toastmasters club in my mid-20s and I actually joined the same club that they had been members of. So they weren't members at the time, but there were definitely people who were there that remembered them. I remember going to my first meeting really, really vividly because it was at the first meeting that I thought this would make a great book. This is a great <laughs> setting for a story. And that was for two reasons. One is, and I say this from a place of affection, is that I thought it was kind of an odd place. And I guess there's a few things that contributed to that. One, I think the act of learning public speaking is probably inherently awkward. So there was this sort of sense of awkwardness to the experience and going along to the meeting. I actually think that's a necessary component for a public speaking club because I think you want it to be a place that feels very non-judgmental and very non-threatening. It was also, to my mind, oddly bureaucratic so that it felt like there were lots of rules and, you know, banging of the gavel and moving of motions. It felt like a space that would be great for satire. However, alongside that, my first meeting, there was a woman that was joining the club and she was a transgender woman and I got to know her over time. And 
sort of learned a little of her story. So basically, she was in the process of transitioning and Toastmasters was the place that she was beginning that journey. And so outside of Toastmasters at that time, she was a completely different person. She was a male in the world, but at Toastmasters, she was what she described as her true self. And that always struck me as something that was incredibly special because I could immediately pick and understand why you would choose Toastmasters as a place to do what I imagine is a pretty difficult thing. So alongside this element that felt funny and odd and unusual and awkward, I always had this dual view that it was also a place that was pretty special and it was really about people finding their voice. And so it struck me as a great setting for a book. Absolutely. Yeah. I fully understand. I'm just curious. You mentioned, of course, you had your parents involved. How did your parents' experience influence your decision to partake in Toastmasters? Because I think we all know how Toastmasters love to encourage other people to join. They certainly do. They were both very, very enthusiastic. I think Toastmasters had given the two of them a lot just in terms of, and I imagine your listeners and yourselves are familiar with this, the liberation from the fear of public speaking. So they, you know, were advocates of it in that respect. They had an unusual experience when they first joined because the club that my dad joined, he joined first, was male only to begin with. And so he went for a little while. They were having a lot of debates and discussions around potentially opening up to include women. And eventually they did. And my mum ended up coming along and she was the club's first female member. But she always told of her first experience that someone got up and gave a speech about a woman's place being in the kitchen. So he obviously was a a person who wasn't so enthusiastic about having women there. And I remember my mum saying she was mortified, absolutely mortified. But she went back the next week or to the next meeting. He didn't. He ended up leaving. But I always thought that was such a curious beginning for her. But yeah, she she loved it. They both loved it. They both did it for a number of years and got a lot out of it. What was your personal motivation for deciding to join Toastmasters? I had swapped jobs. So most of my career, I've worked as an engineer in the water industry. And for a period of time, I worked at a council and did social research type work. So completely different, but suddenly had to do a lot of presentations and just was not thrilled at the idea. I wasn't actually a terrible public speaker, but for me, what I didn't like about public speaking was it took a lot of energy. And in the sense that it took a lot of anticipation and thinking about beforehand and a lot of rumination afterwards, I would like obsess over how I had got. So for me, the joining of Toastmasters I definitely got better at speaking, but I think what is sometimes understated is that I cared less, and I mean that in in the best possible way. I didn't mind so much if I had an imperfect speech, and and that was a liberating thing for me, I think. That makes sense. A a little less self-conscious, less (laughs) self-absorbed about every word that comes out of your mouth and how it came out. Well, and I think it also... uh, you know, which seems strange to people outside of the Toastmasters and the public speaking world. There is a moment or a transition that happens where you really start to like it. And rather than that that feeling of rumination afterwards, you ride the high a bit more. Mm. And the high is the bit that you focus on. 
And you got into the competitive side of public speaking as well, did you not? I did. So partly as research for the book, but I thought, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I wanted to set up, I wanted this Toastmasters setting. I love competition as like a theme and a, I think it's something that is really interesting, the things that people will do in competitive spaces and what drives them. So I wanted to participate in competitions and it was great. I didn't get that far. I probably got through sort of three or four rounds, three rounds, I think, at most. But it was invaluable experience for writing the book. And I, I did coaching, as in I went to go and see a coach to refine the speech as well. I interviewed people who were also competing. Catherine, the novel features numerous parallels, albeit exaggerated, or between Toastmasters and the fictional organization Speechmakers. And I know you already said earlier on Toastmasters-like. Now, in some cases, it comes across, let's say, less than flattering, perhaps. Were you ever concerned that the Toastmaster loyal might find issue with it? The style of writing that I do is a bit satirical. And that's one of the key reasons that I chose, and really from the outset, chose to have this fictitious world of, of public speaking rather than Toastmasters itself. There are elements that are Toastmasters-like, and I think some of that attachment to rules is exaggerated in the book. I do think that there are elements of, of what I would call bureaucracy or formality that exist in Toastmasters that I would see as a little bit quaint and outdated, and, and those do feature in the book. But I think ultimately the book is, I have called it a love letter to Toastmasters in many ways, because these exaggerated elements of speechmakers, and they're exaggerated to the extent that speechmakers is far more an enterprise that is about making money. And so they're charging for various workshops. You know, they have essential oils that will calm your nerves. You can have <laughs> audio recordings that relax you and, and tell you what a great speaker you are. I mean, Toastmasters obviously has none of that. And so in this exaggerated world of speechmakers, one of the main characters is very critical of the direction that this speechmaker's world is going and how commercial it has become and how much it has become about making money. And so he's very much attempting to move the speechmakers, shift the speechmakers' direction back to a, a more pure, really a more Toastmasters-like in many ways undertaking. I think when you write a book, you also want to talk to bigger themes that exist in the world. And so something that I was critiquing, and that I don't see in Toastmasters, but that I was critiquing in general, is this self-improvement space that is about people making money and exists mm. in the same way a diet industry exists to keep people, you know, spending and, and feeling dissatisfied. That is something that I wanted to explore in the book. And the club itself was a good way to do that. Agreed. Catherine, I'm pretty sure you were just referencing one of the main characters in the book, whose name is Keith, and he is the epitome of the rules and protocol-obsessed speechmaker. He's conservative, he wants everything done by the book, follow the procedures, and not only is he critical of the direction that speechmakers is going, he loves to give critical feedback <laughs> to people <laughs> and point out their weaknesses in their speeches. I'm pretty sure I've met Keith <laughs> several times. <laughs> Can you share with us your inspiration for this character? 
I think of Keith in some ways as a bit of a, a Toastmasters archetype. He is someone I feel like I have met elements of him in Toastmasters, but probably also, honestly, in life. And I think that aspect of Keith, I think when you when you talk about characters in books and how they change, you know, what is this character's arc? The book takes place across a three to four day conference. So I don't know how much you can claim a character has completely changed, but the way that he starts to make decisions is different. But I think for Keith, what was really interesting for me was to look at a guy that on the surface, you can say, oh, he's not that like, or he's, he's a bit frustrating. But rather than him change a lot, I think the reader takes a different view of Keith over the course of the book. And you start to say, well, there are, while, you know, a strict adherence to rules and protocols and policies can be frustrating, they exist for a reason in many ways. And so things like a a really simple example of having timed speeches in meetings and having buzzers, you know, if people (laughs) go too far over time is, yeah, you can say that's too much, that's unnecessary, but it also creates an environment that's really egalitarian. And that is about a shared space and that everyone has a voice. So there's sort of both things can be true at the same time. And I really see Keith as the person that kind of epitomizes that. Awesome. Let's talk about the main character, Frances. She strikes me as highly unusual. She's an introvert. She struggles with mental health. She's pessimistic, snarky, judgmental, and she has a striking lack of self-awareness, which I think really all of the characters in the book, for the most part, do. And with all of that, with that personality profile, she joins speechmakers and starts to find a level of success in competitive speaking. It seems almost unthinkable. (laughs) What made you want to create a character like this and put her in such an unlikely scenario? (laughs) So Frances is, her history in terms of public speaking is, and the reason that she is good at public speaking is that she's a former debater. So she's, she's reasonably young. She's in her early twenties and she was a really good debater, but had kind of a fall from grace that triggered, you know, this spiraling and this downfall and some of this mental health sort of stuff. Early on in the writing of the book, I spoke to a friend who was a psychologist and she had mentioned in passing that she had sent clients or people that came to see her to Toastmasters if they had social anxiety. It was one of the things that she had suggested Mm -hmm. and that it was a good space for, for, I don't know, people who were experiencing social anxiety. So I I always found that interesting. One of the things that I thought about with Francis, I had a, a few different competitors that you get to know a bit more through this competition. And for each of them, I had a, a play on words or a sentence that kind of, to me, really distilled their story. And for Francis, her story was that she learns to tell the truth. And so that sort of was what her arc is about. She begins the book with this element of snarkiness and pessimism, but she does in embracing truth and speaking the truth. She sort of sheds a lot of a lot of those things, not necessarily completely, but mm-hmm. that's the arc for her. Whereas with Keith, I think some of his story was about learning to shut up. You know, it was about learning to be quiet and let other people have the stage. And then there's another character, Alan, 
and his stories is really about speaking up and speaking for himself. So I sort of had these these ways that I saw these people's stories and their motivation for competing as being very different, but the way that speech and language could help with what they needed in life. Absolutely. Catherine, you wound up with a grant to travel to the International Convention in Denver, I believe in 2019. Can you tell us how that came about? And maybe more importantly, how did your experience on the ground at the convention shape your presentation of the Speechmakers Convention and Speech Contest that we see in your novel? That convention was Amazing. Can I say, I got a grant through one of the local writers' centres in Victoria in Australia and I put it in and it felt like a lot of money. I think it was about 12000 Australian dollars. And so I put it in and really just didn't even think it would happen. And I had already been to a, a more local conference. I think, I don't know what level conference. I'd been to a couple of conferences anyway, but nothing like the international one. And I remember them calling and saying, oh, yeah, we, we want to give you this money and just being like, really, really, really? Anyways, but the conference was amazing. The main things that I took from that, aside from going to watch the speeches and the speaking competition and going to the workshops, was just the buzz. It was so alive. It was so positive. It was such a beautiful space. And so the that kind of buzzy element was something I really wanted to capture. The other was just seeing the speakers that were competing and with kind of an entourage around them, you know, having coaches and I hadn't really thought much about that. Yeah, it was it was such a high. It was a great experience. I would be very keen to go back and do it again. We certainly wanted to know how the on-the-ground experience obviously shaped your presentation of the Speechmasters Convention. Is there anything else that, let's say, inspired you to create an event or some elements uh, of your book? There there were some workshops that happened at that convention and I attended a lot of them, but a lot of them had great names or great things. And that was something I really played with in the book. I think there was a speech where someone talked about having a phrase that pays and so that you would have a speech, but you would have this phrase within the speech that paid. And I really liked that idea of a phrase that pays. I didn't put that in the book, but I came up with these, you know, a bit over-the-top titles for our <laughs> seminars and workshops. One I was yeah. very attached to was something on called How to Grow Your Club, a Mormon Case Study. And so it was a oh, workshop yeah. on, so on random. Um, recruitment. <laughs> anyway, I had a lot of fun just with playing around with, with those sorts of things. That was good. Right. Well, I, I didn't want to spoil this, but since you brought it up... <laughs> <laughs> the part in the book that I think I got the biggest <laughs> laugh out of, and I shared it with my wife. She loved it. She's not a Toastmaster, but she's been right by my side through the whole journey over the years. Let's see. It was a support group for coaches without clients. And then it says in parentheses, <laughs> so popular, it had to be run twice. <laughs> I just love that. Oh my gosh. There's so much humor in this book. It's like understated, I guess is it, I, I would describe it. Like you said, it, you know, it's satirical. You're not slapping your knee the whole way through, but it's just really clever, really funny. Oh, oh man. Thank you. 
one character we haven't spoken about is Neil or Dr. Neil. <laughs> it's just <laughs> such a poor thing. Oh my goodness. And he's a, he's a doctor, it turns out, of accounting, I believe. Yes, Neil. That was actually something that I remember had happened to a university lecturer of mine. He had a doctorate in mathematics and he said that he flew on a plane once and someone had a heart attack and the flight attendant came over and was like, oh, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, can you help? We've got a, you know, <laughs> someone's had a heart attack. And he said, I just felt so inadequate. I could not, <laughs> I could not do a thing. So he didn't fly again with the, with the doctor prefix. <laughs> right. yeah. That's one of those sad but true uh, types of situations. <laughs> I was going to say it's it's obvious that from even our just our discussion, but also reading the book, that the book has found readership both amongst Toastmasters and non-Toastmasters. I'm curious, what kinds of feedback have you received from both types of readers? I have received good feedback from both. My favorite feedback is the feedback from people who have been in the public speaking world that say there's so much of this that I that resonates with me and feels very true. Yeah, that's the feedback that excites me the most. I think because you capture that world, but capture that world with both sides of it, I think, is the feedback that I get excited about. Anything from non-Toastmasters that sticks out? A fellow writer who writes crime said that he felt that I could talk about, well, they talk a lot about creating tension in writing crime. And he said it's got a crime level of tension through it, which I thought was a really great compliment because it's sort of a funny thing at competition. I think competition is in some ways easier on film. I realised through the writing of the book that to have a competition around public speaking is sort of a funny thing because nothing happens on stage. It's literally just a person talking. So the meaning that is attached to a speech has to happen off stage. Yeah, it's sort of a, a funny anomaly. But the stories, the characters, the situations certainly carry it through without having done anything on the stage. Mm, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's an idea for you. So my wife had looked over the book at some point, and there's actually a comment on the back that surprised me a little bit. One of the reviewers referred to it as a laugh-out-loud kind of rom-com. And while there was a little bit of a budding romantic element between a couple of the characters, I wouldn't have called it a rom-com. I'm not sure if you would have. But anyway, her idea, if, and feel free to steal this if you like, are, are you familiar with the Hallmark Channel? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay, so here in the States and uh, maybe elsewhere as well, but there's the company Hallmark that makes greeting cards, and they have a movie channel, which is known for these really over-the-top romantic films, kind of like a romance novel, but in film, often with like washed-up actors from the 80s and whatnot. <laughs> this is sounding great. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I, I mean, I'll admit it right here. I've watched more than a couple uh, with my wife and they, they're they like, it's like the guilty pleasure. Like they're, they're, some of them are just so good. It. You get hooked in despite yourself. But anyway, my wife was like, this would be, you've got, you know, usually you've got the like meet cute scene that happens in the coffee shop or whatever in these romantic films, which she's like, a public speaking competition. What a great setting for like a romance novel. <laughs> I love that. 
<laughs> As I said earlier, I had no idea how the story would end until the very end. So the fact that it kept me thinking and my thought was totally out to lunch, but love the ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was great. And then just the whole revelation of the backstory of Francis, you alluded to it before. I'm not going to spoil it for the listeners, but of what happened in her past that led her to be the way she is today and what she was dealing with and trying to redeem was like, wow, I <laughs> didn't see that coming. Which <laughs> happened. As far as I know, that is a true story of something that <laughs> happened. Tell us a little bit about your previous book, your first book, The Helpline. So The Helpline was, it's like a long time ago now, I mentioned that I worked at council, at a council, and I didn't work on a telephone helpline, but I had my first job out of uni was at a, on a telephone helpline advising people about kind of the terms and conditions of their employment. So basically, the helpline is a woman who's really good with numbers. She gets a job working at a council on a telephone helpline where older people call in and it's sort of a kind of a social support kind of thing providing a little bit of conversation, but also hooking them up with different services and bits and pieces. Anyway, this this woman, Jermaine, is wholly unsuited to that job. All she wants <laughs> to do is automate it. And so she becomes immersed in this council world, and in particular with this senior citizens club that the council is looking to shut down. Nice. Wow. I can already imagine <laughs> with, with your satirical <laughs> style how that must be a lot of fun. <laughs> Catherine, I would love to hear so much more, but we've sort of run out of time. And folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast as much as Ryan and I have, first and foremost, take the opportunity to share this podcast with all of your friends and family. You can find the Toastmasters podcast at toastmasterspodcast.com. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts. And go out and get this book because you certainly won't be sorry. <laughs> and on that topic, Catherine, how can people find your book and how can they find you and get in touch if they want to ask you their own questions about what was going through your mind as you penned this amazing work? Okay. First and foremost, buy the book. The ebook is available worldwide. So you can get that on Amazon if you have a Kindle or elsewhere if you don't have a Kindle. You can get the paperback copy of the book sent out through Booktopia, which is an Australian website. That's Booktopia. And you can get in contact with me via Instagram is probably the best way. And that is at Catherine Collette Writer. Fantastic. Catherine Collette, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been an absolute pleasure and look forward to your next contribution. Thank you for having me. Isn't it about time you publish that book you've been thinking about? We can help with that. At ebookit.com, we've been providing authors and small presses with ebook publishing services since 2010. Visit us today at ebookit.com and let us know how we can help you.